Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Toys R Us and iHeartMedia once known as uh, iHeart Communications and a whole bunch of other names. What do these companies have in common, both filing for bankruptcy, both ending uh, years of difficulties with their balance sheets, both otherwise viable businesses except for the mass of debt on their books? Here to talk about that with us is Matt Townsend, global business reporter for Bloomberg, as well as Phil Brendel, senior credit analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Matt, uh, I want to start with you. Toys R Us is liquidating as uh, the retailer I uh, was unable to successfully turn around its business. You guys have been reporting on this, broke the news on this. Uh, what really is the reason for this demise? Well, from my view, I've been covering the company for a number of years. This is a private equity story. Uh, all the people we talked to over the past several months, almost to a T, said there's a viable business here, but the debt structure is so messed up and the company's so overlevered. And even the CEO, when he was speaking to employees yesterday, we know that he basically said, look, the deck was stacked against us for years. Maybe we could, could have done some things differently, of course, but at the end of the day, it was just too hard to get from out from under that debt. Can we just go back a little bit and, and maybe just set the stage uh, here for a little uh, kind of history lesson when it comes to uh, sure. Toys R Us, right? Sure. Because uh, this is not a brand new thing. Uh, debt was downgraded to junk status. This was back in January of 2005, right? Amazon sales were just 4% of their current level right. in 2005. And a year later, the company was taken private by KKR, Bain Capital, and Vornado. $6.5 billion purchase left it with $5.3 billion in debt. How can you make those numbers work? It's hard. And, you know, did KKR and Bain know what was coming with the recession? Did they know how prevalent online shopping would be? No. That definitely hurt the business. But from the years of covering this company, talking to former executives, to a T, they would say, and now maybe they were trying to cover themselves, but they would say, we had big plans. We want to invest in these kinds of things with the company, operations, doing things with the online platform, and the private equity owners just wouldn't let us do it to the level we wanted. So that's why I say this is really a private equity story in many respects. Um, it's very sad. You know, Toys R Us in the U.S. has over 30,000 employees, over 60,000 worldwide. And the U.S. business, for the most part, is winding down. There is some hope that maybe some stores will stay open, but for the most part, winding down. So, uh, Phil, come on in here. From your perspective, from a debt analysis uh, point of view, was Toys R Us inviable given where its debt was and sort of what the revenue uh, prospects were? I think the biggest problem with Toys R Us was um, it, that they kept adding debt to it and restructuring debt, and they tried to do everything out of court without ever saying, you know what, this is simply too much debt for this business. We have to reduce it, uh, go through bankruptcy once, and then you know try and get the capital structure in the right place. Um, 
you know, they, they kept playing games, uh, making the capital structure more complex. And one of the things that's fascinating to look at with Toys R Us is if you take a look at each of the separate companies that they created, they now each have their own set of advisors, financial advisors, lawyers, um, with their own, you know, uh, set of fees. And, and so I, I think a lot of the complexity here, they went into bankruptcy without a plan. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think this is ultimately what you're seeing. And retail is an extremely uh, difficult industry to be doing that in. Yeah, they, were, they did go into bankruptcy without a plan. You know, the, the, result, the company's results were somewhat okay, but what happened was they did hire a restructuring advisor late last year. That news got out. That created a, that spooked vendors. They stopped shipping or were going to hold back shipments, and so they had to file. Didn't have a plan, and it just snowballed from there. And we know that their holiday quarter, the fourth quarter, was terrible. They basically got they basically earned half the EBITDA they expected, and that just increased more doubts with lenders, and they decided to pull the plug. This is uh, going to be a textbook uh, case, uh, and uh, I know that we're going to talk to you more about it uh, in the future. Thanks very much. I'm Matt Townsend. Mm-hmm. He's our global business reporter for Bloomberg News. You can follow Matt uh, on Twitter at Matt underscore Townsend. Uh, Phil, uh, Brendel, I just want you to stay with us for a little bit longer because, uh, of course, another uh, bankruptcy, iHeartMedia. Uh, give us an update there, and what are their future prospects? Sure. Um, you know, this is a very different story. Uh, I think much of the drama and squabbling has actually been done uh, before it filed for bankruptcy. Uh, I've been following this for two years. And, uh, you know, they have they filed with a, uh, a restructuring support agreement, a term sheet, um, the support of uh, a class that represents 13 billion of the 15.5 billion dollars of debt that they're looking to restructure. Uh, so I think it should be on a uh, pretty clean path to getting out of bankruptcy. And uh, you know th- th- what's interesting is you have this massive radio business and this massive outdoor business, both of which will ultimately be changing ownership. Uh, Bain and Th Lee, uh, which bought this, you know, uh, pre-Great Recession, right. uh, are, are now looking at uh, you know getting a much. I, they do own some of the debt, so they'll own a smaller stake here. But ultimately, it'll be these creditors who will own both sides of this business. Although this is hardly a model for what private equity ought to do with a company, right? I mean, this is the largest U.S. radio station owner and uh, from many accounts would have also been a viable business were it not for the uh, more than $20 billion of debt on its balance sheet stemming from its LBO. Right. Uh, this is what private equity does, right? They lever up companies. They, 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 they fund it uh, with hopefully cheap debt from their perspective, and they uh, write an equity check. The equity checks here were relatively small because this was another pre-Great Recession LBO. Um, actually, this one was a little bit troubled. They, in fact, had to take, they had to actually own some of the debt in this one. It was a complicated uh, uh, LBO closing. Uh, but ultimately, the, 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 I mean, to a certain extent, how long this has been going on, it's 10 years uh, before it had ultimately filed for bankruptcy. So that's a testament to the, the strong cash flow here and strong underlying business. Uh, the radio side generates a ton of free cash flow, and the outdoor side uh, it does, a, does a good job as well. 
Phil, uh, did the firms uh, that put this deal together, were they able to get some of their money out? That I don't know. They, you know, they, they, those funds, those private equity funds that actually made the original investment have seemed to do well. Uh, when I took a look, I think it was last year, I took a look at how they did. Um, and, you know, presumably they've been writing down the equity as it's traded down both these uh, as stocks actually trade publicly as well, uh, but it, it's it, it it is possible that perhaps they invested in the debt. Um, uh, they they did have initial debt uh, investments. They've reduced those, that over the year, but it's it's it. I haven't been able to piece together you know their profitability. I want to thank you very much uh, for helping us uh, piece together some of the pieces of uh, iHeart Media. Much appreciated. Also, a story that will continue uh, to attract our attention. Phil Brendel is a senior credit analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. President Trump has talked a lot about deregulating corporate America, including Wall Street banks. But uh, taking a look at what senators and congressmen have done, it isn't quite as much as the uh, rhetoric has made it out to be. Joining us right now is Yalman Onorin, senior writer uh, focusing on banking and finance for Bloomberg News. And uh, Yalman, thanks so much for being here with us. Uh, So yesterday, the U.S. Senate took a concrete step toward rolling back specific regulations. Let's start there and talk about what those are. So the the biggest relief really comes for small banks and some regional banks as well. Um, you know, there was uh, a lot of small banks got swept up in Dodd-Frank. And these were, I mean, so small that, that they were they were a couple billion dollars in assets. And, um, you know, the, the problem with this, and there was a lot of bipartisan support for this, um, and they've been talking about it for years, basically since Dodd-Frank passed, Democrats and Republicans have been saying we need to give some relief to small banks because those are the banks, when they fail, we know how to deal with them. We have FDIC, which takes over a bank on Friday and opens at Monday morning with some stuff sold in between, and, and the system works. It's the too big to fail that we don't, no, we didn't know how to deal with during the crisis, and we still are struggling to to figure out if we know what to do with the, you know ten years later. But but these these things for the small banks are, you know aren't as as bad as what big banks have been pushing for in their regulation. So what's the likely uh, outcome? Are we going to see changes in the regulation that would what make it more possible for banks of smaller size and scale to combine or be bought out? Um, so, I mean, you know, that has, that's a secular trend that's been going on for decades in the U.S. You know, just 20 years ago, we had, you know, uh, more than 8,000 banks. Now we're 5,000 and some change. There's always mergers constantly happening. Uh, small, you know, small banks have a hard time surviving anyway. The economies of scale in banking has forced them to keep merging. And it's not just in banking. If you look at other sectors of the economy, you know, Amazon pushes small retailers out, even big retailers out, but but a lot of, you know, companies get bigger. So there, I don't think the rules will change much, right. but at least the ones that are managing to survive, the ones that are still able to fund their communities will be able to do things easier because they don't want to have as much compliance costs. That's the important thing. Okay, so that's the step that uh, the Senate took yesterday. On a broader issue, just talking about the deregulation of Wall Street, 
What has happened that does affect the too-big-to-fail institutions? We've heard a lot about Volcker and how there's a lot of support to roll that back. Of course, uh, that provision of the Dodd-Frank Act of 2010 uh, prohibited banks or curbed their ability to use their own money uh, to just make bets. So what's the stance on that? So there's a there's a five regulator commission that's that's trying to uh, work on revising Volcker rule. Um, it was it was done by five regulators. That's what Dodd Frank required them to do. So the, so once it became law, um, it they had to also write detailed rules on how that law can be implemented, and that took three and a half years initially. So this is not going to be so easy either, because to get five regulators, including the SEC and the CFTC. Uh, who are not really prudential regulators, they're the market regulators, and the prudential regulators like the Fed together and make them agree on something that is so technical is not easy. So so my best guess, and, and I've talked to a lot of people, you know, working on this as well as observing from outside the industry, uh, it's nothing's going to come out this year, but something maybe next year. And they can really tweak on the margins because the law, that Frank, is not being changed, was not touched on this. Volcker rule stays, but there are certain things, again, they can ease, which can help with compliance. In other words, instead of the big bank proving that they did not do every act uh, as, as a non-prop trading act, they can do all their acts, and if the regulators come in and said, this looks like prop trading, explain to me why it wasn't, then you gotta prove. I mean, it, it eases the burden, right? You don't have to go every trade in every day, you do hundreds and thousands, and put paperwork to prove it's not prop trading, you you have to prove when there's some suspicion that it wasn't. So, you know, some compliance costs could come down on that too. Yaman, is there a quid pro quo when it comes to Dodd-Frank, which is that if you live under the rules and regulations of Dodd-Frank, the government will come and save you if you do something really dumb? <laughs> oh, that's an interesting one. Well, I mean, one of the actually um, elements of Dodd-Frank was... Uh, tying the hands of the Federal Reserve for providing uh, bailout money. That's right. Um, and it's, I mean, to call it bailout money is a little stretched, I think. It's it's that emergency funding, which, of course, can become bailout when you really cannot survive any other way. Um, but, you know, some critics think that that actually is, is too restrictive and the Fed in bad times might have to provide temporary funding doesn't mean the bank cannot stand on its own lender of last resort, which is what central banks are. So, you know, in those ways that nothing has changed, the Fed, the Fed can provide that kind of emergency funding when it's a group of banks. But they couldn't just do it to Bear Stearns, which 10 years ago they did through JP Morgan. Um, in the future, it has to be a, a whole banking sector or a group of banks they can provide funding to. Thank you very much for being with us. Yaman Onoran is our senior writer for Banking and Finance for Bloomberg, and I recommend his book, Zombie Banks. It's a great read, and it has not lost its timeliness. President Trump has talked a lot about deregulating corporate America, including Wall Street banks. But uh, taking a look at what senators and congressmen have done, it isn't quite as much as the uh, rhetoric has made it out to be. Joining us right now is Yalman Onorin, senior writer uh, focusing on banking and finance for Bloomberg News. And uh, Yalman, thanks so much for being here with us. Uh, so yesterday, the U.S. Senate took a concrete step toward rolling back specific regulations. Let's start there and talk about what those are. 
So the the biggest relief really comes for small banks and some regional banks as well. Um, you know, there was uh, a lot of small banks got swept up in Dodd Frank, and these were, I mean, so small that that they were they were a couple billion dollars in assets. And um, you know, the the problem with this, and there was a lot of bipartisan support for this, um, and they've been talking about it for years, basically since Dodd Frank passed. Democrats and Republicans have been saying we need to give some relief to small banks. Because those are the banks, when they fail, we know how to deal with them. We have FDIC, which takes over a bank on Friday and opens at Monday morning with some stuff sold in between, and, and the system works. It's the too big to fail that we don't know, we didn't know how to deal with during the crisis, and we still are struggling to, to figure out if we know what to do with, the, you know, 10 years later. But but these these things for the small banks, are, you know, aren't as as bad as what big banks have been pushing for in their regulation. So what's the likely uh, outcome? Are we going to see changes in the regulation that would what make it more possible for banks of smaller size and scale to combine or be bought out? Um, so I mean, you know, that has that's a secular trend that's been going on for decades in the U.S. You know, just twenty years ago we had you know. Uh, more than 8,000 banks. Now we're 5,000 and some change. There's always mergers constantly happening. Uh, small, you know, small banks have a hard time surviving anyway. The economies of scale in banking has forced them to keep merging. And it's not just in banking. If you look at other sectors of the economy, you know, Amazon pushes small retailers out, even big retailers out. But but a lot of, you know, companies get bigger. So there, I don't think the rules will change much. Right. But at least... The ones that are managing to survive, the ones that are still able to fund their communities, will be able to do things easier because they don't want to have as much compliance costs. That's the important thing. Okay, so that's the step that uh, the Senate took yesterday. On a broader issue, just talking about the deregulation of Wall Street, what has happened that does affect the too-big-to-fail institutions? We've heard a lot about Volcker and how there's a lot of support to roll that back. Of course, uh, that provision of the Dodd-Frank Act of 2010 uh, prohibited banks or curbed their ability to use their own money uh, to just make bets. So what's the stance on that? So there's a, there's a five-regulator commission that's, that's trying to uh, work on revising Volcker rule. Um, it was... It was done by five regulators. That's what Dodd Frank required them to do. So, the, so once it became law, um, it, they had to also write detailed rules on how that law can be implemented, and that took three and a half years initially. So, this is not going to be so easy either, because to get five regulators, including the SEC and the CFTC, uh, who are not really prudential regulators, they're the market regulators, and the prudential regulators like the Fed together and make them agree on something that is so technical is not easy. So so my best guess, and, and I've talked to a lot of people, you know, working on this as well as observing from outside the industry, uh, it's nothing's going to come out this year, but something maybe next year. And they can really tweak on the margins because the law, that Frank, is not being changed, was not touched on this. Volcker rule stays, but there are certain things, again, they can ease, which can help with compliance. In other words, Instead of the big bank proving that they did not do every act uh, as, as a non-prop trading act, they can do all their acts. And if the regulators come in and said, this looks like prop trading, explain to me why it wasn't, then you got to prove. I mean, it, it eases the burden, right? You don't have to go every trade in every day. You do hundreds and thousands and put paperwork to prove it's not prop trading. You, you 
have to prove when there's some suspicion that it wasn't. So, you know, some compliance costs could come down on that too. Yaman, is there a quid pro quo when it comes to Dodd-Frank, which is that if you live under the rules and regulations of Dodd-Frank, the government will come and save you if you do something really dumb? Ah, uh, that's an interesting one. Well, I mean, one of the actually um, elements of Dodd-Frank was uh, tying the hands of the Federal Reserve for providing uh, bailout money. That's right. Um, and it's, I mean, to call it bailout money is a little stretched, I think. It's, it's that emergency funding, which of course can become bailout when you really cannot survive any other way. Um, but, you know, some critics think that that actually is, is too restrictive and the Fed in bad times might have to provide temporary funding. Doesn't mean the bank cannot stand on its own lender of last resort, which is what central banks are. So, you know, in those ways that nothing has changed, the Fed, the Fed can provide that kind of emergency funding when it's a group of banks. But they couldn't just do it to Bear Stearns, which 10 years ago they did through JP Morgan. Um, in the future, it has to be a, a whole banking sector or a group of banks they can provide funding to. Thank you very much for being with us. Yaman Onoran is our senior writer for banking and finance for Bloomberg, and I recommend his book, Zombie Banks. It's a great read, and it has not lost its timeliness. Trade wars, trade sanctions, tariffs, allies, enemies, confrontation when it comes to the economy of the United States and the global economy. Here to help us make some sense out of all this is Patrick Chovanek. He is Managing Director and the Chief Strategist at Silvercrest Asset Management. And you can follow Patrick on Twitter at PR Chovanek, C-H-O-V-A-N-E-C. All right, uh, PR Chovanek. <laughs> What is the biggest uh, trade blunder that you see happening now that we will not see the consequences for in, let's say, five to 10 years? Oh, I think quitting TPP on day one was- The Trans-Pacific Partnership. That's correct. Um, because I think it, first of all, it set the tone um, for this administration that it saw trade as a losing proposition, that it was ceding leadership. I mean, I, you know, look, TPP was not a perfect agreement. You're not going to get a perfect agreement among- you know, 11 or 12 uh, uh, trading partners, but it was the centerpiece of uh, an effort to frame a vision for what an American-led uh, economic order would be in Asia in contrast to the Chinese, uh, What, how appealing that could be that maybe the Chinese would want to join that and might have to change their behavior to join that. Um, and... Um, you know, we just walked away from it, and I and I think it has it will have security implications. I think it will have economic implications. But they, but because it wasn't walking away from something that we already have, like NAFTA, you won't see it immediately. That's why I give the answer to your question that way. Patrick, you're a perfect person to have on today, uh, given your background, given the fact that you have been a top advisor to uh, many Republican uh, lawmakers, including. Uh, John Boehner, the Speaker of the House, and uh, you worked for Karl Rove. You've been in many administrations. So coming at this from that perspective and also with your hat as a money manager, how do you view the decline in the dollar? Do you view that as a uh, proxy for the 
political risk that has risen in the U.S. and sort of the distaste that that has left foreign investors with? In the past couple of weeks, yes. Really? Um, Because normally, if you looked over the past year, uh, when President Trump announced the possibility of trade sanctions, usually the dollar would go up. Uh, and the other currency would go down. And that was because the, just the economic effect would be uh, there would be less U.S. demand for imports, therefore less demand for foreign currency, more demand for the dollar. The, the fact that that's reversed, and now in reaction to the steel tariffs, you see the dollar going down. In reaction to some of this talk about China, you see the dollar going down. I think that is a vote of no confidence or, or at least nervousness about where U.S. policy is heading. Okay, so as you decide how to advise uh, your funds to allocate cash, I mean, how much can you trade on this political risk? Are you advising them to stay uh, bearish on the dollar because of an ongoing political risk factor? Or are you saying, you know what, you can't trade this, just keep an eye on it? So we we manage whole portfolios uh, for, for families. And uh, so we don't really favor any particular asset class. Uh, And, you know, we've been actually pretty constructive about the U.S. economy and about U.S. markets because most of the economic data out there is pretty good. Uh, There's a lot of growth momentum. We did say when the announcement about the tariff, the steel tariffs came out, that we would, if it was enacted, see this as a negative uh, in terms of our outlook for the U.S. economy. And I think you know, we just have to see where this goes because, uh, you know, focusing on just one thing like where, where, whether the dollar, there's this can go in so many directions, and I think it's gonna the implications of it, the ramifications are gonna all unfold over the next few weeks and months when we see retaliatory measures, when we see further tariff actions, we're likely to see that at least probably aimed at China. We're hearing, um, and so you know, we're kind of riding this. This roller coaster, um, trying to figure out, like everyone else, how much of a negative impact this will have in an economy which, by and large, is doing pretty well. You've uh, spent a lot of time in China. You're a teacher at a university in uh, Beijing. What can you tell us about the Chinese uh, attitude towards the United States right now? The big change that I saw was in 2008 with the financial crisis. Before the financial crisis, China, by and large, looked to the US as a model, uh, maybe not a political model, but definitely an economic model, which had a lot of implications about openness. And and the reformers, the people in favor of a more open society, a more open economy, had the upper hand. After that, there was a lot of disillusionment with the US, uh, there was a belief that China had a better model, better recipe for success. And I think we've seen that work its way out, not just in the economic policies in China, but also the political policies, the tightening up of you know, one-party rule and, and uh, sort of an autocratic top-down approach. Uh, I think that bodes well. F- uh, I think it bodes poorly for China. I think it creates a lot of problems they're not, they're not really dealing with. But uh, it also poses challenges to us about how we respond to that. You said that you're expecting uh, some sort of additional tariffs with respect to China in particular. What would be constructive tariffs in your mind and what would not be? I mean, this is the big question is, is the purpose of, of imposing tariffs on China to really to get them to open up their markets or is it 
just to imitate China and close down our own markets. Uh, and a lot of the rhetoric that we've heard from the president himself suggests it might be the latter. But assuming it's the former, um, there is a history that shows that, yes, at times you can, you know, trade threats against China can sometimes work, but they have to be very carefully calibrated, very carefully targeted um, at sensitive areas. And it's better to go in on a multilateral basis. There are a lot of other countries that are equally concerned about, for instance, overcapacity in the steel industry in China, um, who we can work with. But we've burned a lot of those bridges over the past week or so. Um, you know, the, the trade fights that we're picking with other countries are going to compromise our ability to work together with those trading partners to target problem behaviors with China. Which industries in China do you think? Uh, oh, gosh. I used targets? to. So when I was in China, I helped out with the American Chamber of Commerce in China. Every year we would put together a book, I mean, a thick book, uh, sector by sector of unfair practices that we wanted to change. And it really ranges from the service industry where, uh, you know, a lot of uh, U.S. companies are excluded uh, to, uh, you know, to things like steel overcapacity and the inability to resolve that and dumping. So, you know, there's a, a, and particularly- Intellectual property. Yeah. And the theft of intellectual property is a big issue. Right. But you need that uh, multilateral kind of approach to, mm -hmm. to do it effectively. Patrick Shavanik, thank you so much for being with us. Patrick Shavanik, Managing Director and Chief Strategist at Silvercrest Asset Management, joining us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Coming up, Bloomberg Politics, Policy, Power and Law. They will be talking about the new sanctions as well as, well as Larry Kudlow as the new head of the NEC. From New York, this is Bloomberg. Time we want to visit with Steve Matthews, our economics reporter for Bloomberg News, who can be followed on Twitter at SteveMatthews12. And uh, he's here to uh, discuss uh, Larry Kudlow replacing Gary Cohn as director of the White House National Economic Council. Steve, uh, what kind of experience is Larry Kudlow going to be bringing to this office uh, that uh, are going to be useful to, to the president? So Larry is best known for the last decade he's been on CNBC, and you've been hearing him, you know, basically every night on on uh, with with his views on television. Uh, but before that, he was with Bear Stearns as the uh, chief economist, and he's been somebody who's been familiar in in and around Wall Street for you know a couple of decades, and he brings essentially a uh, traditional conservative Republican view uh, that is very Wall Street friendly. He believes in free markets, free enterprise, uh, free trade. That may be uh, something that uh, could cause some conflicts. Although uh, he's renounced those views to some degree. Yeah, he, quickly. He, that, that's true. He has renounced them. To, well, I wouldn't say renounced, but he has, he has uh, bought into the recent tariffs that Trump has, has announced on uh, on steel and aluminum, uh, said some comments about China. Uh, so, I mean, he's definitely trying to be a team player, but if you read his views, it's pretty clear uh, he's on the free trade side yeah. of the of the ledger. All right, let's talk about uh, some of his economic calls and credentials. I want to read you a quote uh, that he uh, wrote on December 7th, 2007 in National Review. Despite all the doom and gloom from the economic pessimists, 
The resilient U.S. economy continues moving ahead. Of course, that was the eve of the worst financial <laughs> crisis since the Great Depression. Everyone can be forgiven for being wrong, but has his record been more right than wrong? You know, if you look at the last decade, he has made lots and lots of bad calls. Uh, he was wrong on the recession. It, that that The comments you are citing are from December uh, 2007. That was the month that the NBR... National Bureau of Economic Research dated the recession starting. Uh, he said a bit before then, there's no housing bubble, and specifically cited Naples, Florida, and Las Vegas. No, there's no housing bubble in Las Vegas or, or uh, Naples. It's like that was not exactly right. Uh, when Yellen was uh, promoted by uh, President Obama, uh, Janet Yellen, he said, this is going to usher in higher inflation, and you know you just better watch out. We're going to see higher inflation. No, we really haven't seen higher inflation. Uh, so th th the one prediction that he's made recently that has turned out to be right and has actually been uh, actionable was he said if Trump is elected, buy stocks. Stocks are going to go up. Lots of people are negative on stocks because they're worried about Trump. Buy them. It turned out to be right. Steve, aside from uh, his prognostications and uh, whether he got this right, that right, I, I mean, I guess a lot of you know a lot of people can get things wrong. I get things wrong all the time, but uh, I want to focus on his role uh, in the White House because Gary Cohn is often mentioned as one of the lead architects of the uh, tax cuts that were passed uh, in in Washington. Is Larry Kudlow a good person to have if you want to do, let's say, tax cuts round two, or you want to sort of get a group of people like legislators to support other economic programs uh, like an infrastructure plan? Is he a good cheerleader to help make that happen? I think Kudlow is a very articulate spokesman for the administration. And, you know, one thing that he brings uh, that may be more than Gary Cohn is the ability to kind of, you know, browbeat Congress to to, to make his case to the people. And yes, on taxes, he is very much in favor of low taxes. Uh, he's already talking about perhaps uh, round two, you could have capital gains taxes. That right. was something that was not included. So maybe, this is, so maybe it's actually a very good fit. And maybe having Larry Kudlow, who is no stranger, obviously, to, to the media and being able to communicate to a, a variety of constituencies is, is exactly the kind of person the president needs right now. There's a good case to be made that he is exactly what is needed. He'll be a great communicator. Uh, there are, the points of friction that you could have would be over trade, particularly if, you know, if NAFTA negotiations uh, you know, don't work out so well that he could be on the free trade side. The other thing that uh, you know, a number of, uh, of uh, commentators point out is that Larry likes the camera. Uh, he is outspoken. Uh, that can cause some friction if, you know, if, he, if he gets too much into the spotlight. And some people have already predicted he won't be around past Thanksgiving because, yeah. you know, you, that can cause friction. Well, yeah, especially <laughs> when you have proclamations like the one that he came out and said that he would buy the king dollar uh, and sell gold. You know, if that were, I mean, yes, the dollar is up you know, minorly today. But if that were to start some massive dollar rally that then some. Yeah, that will cause friction it, because supposedly the Treasury Department right. is only supposed to speak about the dollar. 
So here and, we go. And Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, has has you know made nuanced comments, but basically suggested he would be fine with a weaker dollar. Right. This will be an interesting uh, White House conversation, I am sure. And you will be covering it for us. Steve Matthews, economics reporter for Bloomberg News. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.